God bless y'all. Y'all may be seated. Good morning. I want to show you. Yeah, how do I follow that? I don't. We just, just let that be what it was and give me a break, all right? Uh, welcome to Southland City Church. I want to share some pictures with you. Let's start here. Uh, this is, uh, I was there that night. Uh, this is Lollapalooza 2017, Chance the Rapper on the headline stage. Any fans? Yeah, it's excellent. This was like his big homecoming return. He'd done the smaller stage a few years earlier and then apparently had a little bit of success and came back strong on the big stage. Uh, that's a, a moment of music with a crowd that's interacting with it in a certain way, feeling a certain thing, doing the things that you do when you're at a Chance the Rapper show, right? Next picture. I did not take this one, I wasn't there, but this is from the Philadelphia Concert Hall where the symphony is performing. This too is music, live performance with a crowd. It feels very different. The people act very different. The music even seems to be doing something different, even though it's all music and it's all live performance, right? How about this one? This is from The Pool in South Bend. Any fans? Yeah, some of you know what this is. The Pool is part of Central High Apartments, which is just a few blocks north of here. It's an actual former school. And uh, one of the beauties of that building is they've maintained all the architectural peculiarities of a school, including an actual pool. So this picture is taken from the vantage point of the floor underneath where the water would have been, right? And the people that moved into the pool several years ago realized this has some potential, and they started hosting house shows there. I had the chance to play one of those shows. I was playing keys for a buddy of mine. And we got there and we found out one of the rules of the pool is there's no sound system, there's no PA. They do that first because they don't want to disturb the neighbors because it really is just an apartment complex and people live right next door. But they also discovered that it creates a certain kind of intimacy when people have to actually lean in and pay attention. And it, this is music too, it's live music with a crowd, but it feels a certain way and it does a certain thing to you and you expect certain things from all of this, right? So there's a chance at Lollapalooza, and there's the symphony, and then there's the pool. And then, of course, uh, there's this, the mosh pit. Anybody been in a mosh pit before? Yeah, so you have, um, you have different experiences right now. If you don't understand that this is a different kind of music that's doing a different kind of thing, you might see this picture and be concerned about the violence. You might think, is there a riot breaking out? Not realizing that even though it's all music, it's all live performance, whatever, uh, a symphony crowd at a hardcore show might be confused <laughs> about what's happening. And it wouldn't do to just say, well, it's all music. You should expect the same things. You would recognize there's different uh, feelings, different attitudes, different behaviors. All of this shows up. And the reason I bring all this to mind is because we're looking at a text during the Advent season that's a very particular kind of text. And not unlike symphony goers who might show up at a hardcore show and be confused, concerned, like not sure how to interact, you can read different parts of the Bible and then end up in the book of Revelation, which is what we are looking at this month, and not realize, yeah, it's all scripture, it's all sacred text, but there might be very different things going on in different parts of this big book that we call the Bible. We might need to have different expectations for how different parts of this book should feel. In fact, things that look violent or uncomfortably intense might actually perfectly belong if you know what kind of show you're at. And the book of Revelation is um, difficult and intense, uh, but if you know what kind of show you're at, if you know what kind of genre you're working with, it can begin to lead us out of some of the really problematic ways of reading this book and into what this book was actually meant to do in us and among us. I said last week, um, I, I wanna talk a little bit about what it meant 
so we can figure out what it means. One of the principles I'm working with is if you have an interpretation of the book of Revelation that essentially says this text didn't really have much to say to its original audience because all the signs and symbols are just meant to be decoded and mapped on to 21st century geopolitical movements, I would argue that that fails the first basic test of interpretation, which is before you can ask what it means, you have to ask what it meant. So there's that layer that we're sort of working with. And today we have this genre layer on top of that, which says this genre works a certain way. And if you don't know uh, that you're at a hardcore show, <laughs> you might misinterpret some of the things that are happening. So let me talk to you a moment about the genre of the text. Today, by the way, we're going to do some work, okay? I promised Revelation during the month of December. You're going to get Revelation during the month of December, okay? I'm super excited about this. It is a, a robust, kind of like juicy text, and we're going to hit a lot of it today to try to get our handle on what it's doing, both for its original audience and for us. So we're jumping in. Everybody ready to go? Cool. Awesome. Uh, here's the cool thing about Revelation. The very first sentence of it tells us exactly what kind of text it is. This is chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the English, it's often translated, the revelation from Jesus Christ. But in the Greek, the word for revelation is apocalypsis. Let's try saying that on three. One, two, three. Apocalypsis. Yeah, apocalypsis. So that's in the Greek. And the cool thing is, apocalypse is actually a genre. So it's not just um, describing this letter. It's saying this letter is a part of a way of communicating. It's a certain kind of art form. And that tells us it's meant to do a certain kind of thing. So let's talk about this genre that we call an apocalypse for a second. Now, the good news about an apocalypse is that apocalypses uh, are defined as a genre. Like, people have done good work on this. There's a group called the Society for Biblical Literature, which I'm sure many of you are already members of. JK. Um, and they've done genre work just as a consensus of scholars. They said, how do we understand what different uh, modes of text are doing so we can appreciate what they're doing with us? And they've gotten together and said, here's a basic understanding of what an apocalypse is. This is from a guy named J.J. Collins who writes for the SBL. He says, this is a genre of revelatory literature within a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient disclosing a transcendent reality. Let's break that down. A genre of revelatory literature, a text that's revealing something, right? Well, how does it do the revealing? There's a narrative to it. There's a story. John says, and then this happened, and then I saw this. There's a story unfolding in front of his eyes in which a revelation is mediated, communicated, given by an otherworldly being to a human recipient. John is receiving this like through an angel and through Christ who speaks to him disclosing a transcendent reality. Hold on to that. Disclosing a transcendent reality, meaning this isn't just giving meaning to geopolitical events in the here and now, but rather it's saying there's something behind all of this. There's something bigger than all of this. There's something that transcends what meets the eye, and I'm trying to help you see the thing behind the thing. And that's actually a little hint about where we're going today. Getting genre right, reading the text first for what it meant before we ask what it means is important. Because like even this week, a friend of mine during our first gathering was telling me about a radio preacher this week on Christian radio who was talking about how one of the events in Revelation is most definitely Chernobyl, the nuclear accident, and how another event is most definitely the Berlin Wall. And one of the really dangerous things with that, besides the fact that like it just 
misses the basic principles of biblical interpretation? Because why would the seven churches in Asia in the first century that are actually being written to, why would they care about Chernobyl? That doesn't mean anything for the original people this letter was written to. There's that problem. But the other problem is if you follow those kinds of interpretive trajectories, you often find people supporting practices and policies and military actions that are quite violent and damaging in the here and now because they think it's part of some cosmic plan. And all of a sudden you have people who say they love Jesus and are following the Prince of Peace who are advocating for conflict in the world because they think these conflicts are inevitable and unavoidable and we have to invest ourselves in them on the way to the end of the story. That's a huge problem. So now that I've dropped that on you, let's keep going, great. You've got a genre thing going on here. Now, here's the good news. Today, I'm gonna give you the whole book of Revelation in three simple movements. I'm gonna try to help us get our arms around the whole thing. And then here's the good news. After today, you could, you could grab one of those Bibles over there, which are free for anyone who wants to take. You could go home and you could read this book, and you'll, you'll have this basic framework in mind that'll help you work through what it's actually doing. Highly recommend that. Let me propose, and this isn't my outline, this is somebody much smarter than me who's done much more work than me. Let me propose a basic outline in the book of Revelation. It looks a little like this. Early, we have messages to seven churches. This is where John is actually writing to seven local communities of faith in seven cities in Asia under the Roman Empire. So there's seven different churches. Each gets a message. After the messages to the churches, then we have acts of judgment against the current powers. Because the heart of the letters to these churches is, you've sworn your allegiance to the kingdom of God. You've given your life to the world that God wants, in you and among you. And then there's the way things are right now. There's the way the world is organized right now. There's the Roman Empire right now, which holds the power today, and with its economic injustices and its depraved sexual practices and its cultic worship is incompatible with the thing that you have given your heart to and your life to. So then in this broad middle, we see that the way things are, the current powers, the regime of Rome and the evil that's behind it is being confronted and judged. That's all that really dramatic language. We'll look at an example in a second. And then we have at the end the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, a particular letter written to seven individual communities saying, hey, there's a confrontation between the way things are and the way God wants them to be. And ultimately, you need to know that the way things are is not the way they will be because God will do something about all of this. Super basic outline. Let me give you a little taste of each of those movements, okay? So first of all, here's what the letters to the churches look like in chapters two and three. A few examples. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus. Jesus is saying, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. So there's an encouragement, there's an affirmation in this. You have been enduring. You've given your heart to the kingdom of God, and you've met some resistance to that. You've suffered because of that, and I affirm the fact that you are enduring, but somewhere along the way, that passion in your heart, that fervor has begun to wane. 
It's begun, begun to diminish. And I'm saying you need to like reclaim that passion, that love that compelled you toward this way in the very first place. Another letter to a church in chapter 2, 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Again, this is speaking of Christ. Who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. So to the church in Smyrna, Christ speaks and says, you have suffered because of your faithfulness to the kingdom. It has cost you something. But I will tell you in another way, you are richer because of it. Don't be afraid. Things will get harder before they get better, but you have nothing to fear. There's another letter that we read uh, in chapter 212. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Again, that's Christ speaking. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, that's a little... Here, this is apocalyptic. This is hardcore, right? So Satan has a throne in Pergamum. Two possibilities here that most commentators agree on. One is there's actually a temple to the god Zeus there. And the, the thing about the temple to the god Zeus is night and day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, sacrifices are being offered to that god. And embedded in those sacrificial practices are ugly, unjust, depraved things. So that's going on in the city of Pergamum. That might be the reference to the throne of Satan. Or, remember, throughout the book of Revelation, Rome is the problem. It's empowered by evil. It's the mechanism by which evil is working its way out in the world. It's unjust and corrupt and depraved. And it happens that the Roman governor has his seat of authority in Pergamum. So it's also possible that the throne of Satan here is a reference to that. Uh, you did not, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. He just keeps digging that in, right? Antipas is a Christian who was martyred for his faith. So we have uh, letters there. We have letters to Laodicea in Philadelphia, seven individual churches in different cities in Asia. That's the first movement in the book of Revelation. Now we move to the big, long stretch from chapter 4 to 18. After speaking to these particular communities and reminding them in your community, like this could be written to South Bend City Church in its own way, here in flesh and blood among our community in our city in this context, there is a collision between the way things are and the way they will be, and we are here for the way things will be. There's a collision between the, the way things are and the way that God wants them to be, and we are here for the way that God wants them to be. And I, I can, I, sometimes I'll sit at home even this week, I've wondered, what would the letter say to us? That's probably another sermon for another day, but we could imagine like for a local embodied community in place and time, there might be a word for us about how we are navigating the tension between the way things are and the way things will be. There's that. Then we have the next big movement is the collision between the way things are and the way things will be, where evil is named for what it is and where we see God waging war against that evil. Last week, we looked at the angels and the trumpets and the plagues, very intense, violent language. That's from that big, long middle section. Let me show you another example from this big, long middle section uh, here in chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. 
There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, and she was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. That is fairly severe. Uh, The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. Watch this. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, side note, Revelation actually isn't always very mysterious. If you're writing to first century communities that are under the grip of Rome, an empire that has ravaged the ancient world, and the letter says, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth, that's not actually a mystery. It's Rome. That's obvious to these people. This isn't actually encoded. He's like, I I know you know what I'm talking about, so let me add another layer of meaning on top of it. When you see Rome, you need to know that you are looking at something that is dressed up in luxury, but in fact is abominable. You would need to realize that you're looking at something that is dressed up in privilege, that's gilded, that has a veneer on it that looks really good, but in fact, it's like it's drunk on blood, on violence, on, on manipulative power. Like This is both obvious and important for these people to realize the allure of Rome's beauty is really just corrupt and depraved. So that's an example from the big middle section about the confrontation. Let me tell you what these things really are and what God's going to do about them. And then the third movement is the way things will be. Like, for example, here in chapter uh, 21. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God will be their God. So that's a big, uh, that's like the whole book of Revelation. Good, you, got, you can go now, you got the whole thing down, right? Um, that's, those are the big major movements of this. Uh, one scholar uh, who writes a really fantastic commentary says, first of all, the book of Revelation is meant to be taken as a whole. It would have been read from beginning to end in the churches that it was written to in one big hearing. So you would have, you would have had to kind of swallow the entire message and then work it out, right? And he says the effect of the entire book is to pose this question. His name, by the way, tragically for a scholar writing commentary as an ancient text is M. Eugene Boring. Uh, It's actually a fantastic book. He says, the question is, will the Christians who must decide how to live their lives in the mundane cities of Asia, that's part one, the letters to the churches, will they A, orient themselves to the great city, quote unquote, that will receive God's judgment, that's Rome, or to the holy city that will be redeemed by God? He says, that's the big question posed by this apocalyptic text. Now, just to translate that from M. Eugene Boring, here's my J. Miller exciting version. Hey, churches, pay attention. There's the way things are, and there's the way things will be. So first of all, if you are threatened by the way things are, because it's unjust, because they are killing your brothers and sisters, because they are torturing you, because they are telling you, play along with the way things are, or we will take you out. If you are threatened by the way things are, don't worry. God is going to deal with this. And if you're tempted by the way things are, watch yourself. 
This story is going somewhere, and you don't want to forget that. Um, it's as if th these local communities are being told, when things get difficult, don't get discouraged. And when things are easy, don't get distracted. Because the way things are is not the way they will be. And we want to be here for the way that things will be. When things are made whole, when justice is instituted, when wrongs are made right, when any investment we've made in the broken systems turns out to be a bad investment, we want to be here for the way that things will be. Now, uh, an Anglican scholar, a woman named Fleming Rutledge, uh, she talks about the season that we are in uh, called Advent and what it means to wait and hope and the way that these texts like Revelation are meant to work on us. And she says this. She says, what we see in all the apocalyptic texts is the motif of the double calling of the church. One, active resistance. And two, patient endurance. That there are moments where we need to push back against the way things are. We need to organize. We need to stand up. We need to fight. We need to actively resist the way that things are. Uh, in your own life, there might be some patterns some resignations, some ways that you've just decided this is the way things are that you need to actively resist. And in the world that we are creating together, there are things about the way things are that we need to actively resist. And then there are moments when we realize today we can't fix it, but we've got to find a way to patiently endure. In your life, in my life, there might be some things that we have to patiently endure for a season. And in the world that we are creating together, there might be some things that we have to patiently endure for a season. And these texts are meant to move us into these two modes, active resistance, patient endurance. But now I wanna ask, where do you get the strength to actively resist? From where do you get the strength to keep patiently enduring? Because it'd be one thing if I just like threw this at you, all right, so go out and resist. But some of us are exhausted. I know, um, especially when I learn from brothers and sisters from neighbors who have found uh, the world that we have created to be less hospitable to them than it is to me, I discover some of them are exhausted. And as they tell me their stories, I understand why I would be too. From where do we find the strength to actively resist or to patiently endure? Is it enough to simply say, that sounds like a good idea? Well, here I wanna go even deeper into what the book actually does. Because this is hardcore, this is punk rock, this is, has an energy to it, it has a power to it that I'm hoping we can keep getting in touch with. Uh, so now I'm gonna uh, observe something bizarre about the book of Revelation. This is one of the things that trips up interpreters who don't know what they're doing, if I can be so bold. I'm not trying to be um, flippant about that, but like, there's a, there's a peculiar problem with Revelation. Here's the problem. It doesn't work chronologically. You can't read the book coherently if you start in Revelation 1 and go to 22 and try to track a plot line. It actually just doesn't work that way. It's incoherent if you just try to read. Okay, so apparently chapter 1, verse 1 is the beginning of a chronology, and then everything that's being described somehow is chronologically next on a calendar or a timeline. It just doesn't work that way. And one of the proofs of that is that late in the book, after we've seen judgments and prostitutes in Babylon and all this stuff, late in the book, Revelation does a mythological retelling of the Christmas story. 
So there's a moment late in the book where a woman gives birth and a dragon is there waiting to devour her young. That's a mythological retelling of Jesus being born 2,000 years ago. Okay, so that's just an example where if you're trying to read it chronologically, it just it doesn't work. It will break down on you. And one of the peculiar things about it is you have this big overall arc. Hey, local churches, I'm talking to you. There's the way things are, and then there's the way things will be. There's the, that's the big arc. And the middle, the big middle is the way things are, but... Again and again and again, in the middle, it gets perforated with a different picture of the way things are that looks a lot like the way things will be. Hang with me. Let me say that again. Throughout the big middle, where you're sort of living in the tension of the way things are, the injustice, the evil, the confrontation, in the middle of all that, again and again, it gets interrupted with a picture of the way things are in the present tense that looks a lot like the way things will be. Let me show you uh, one example from the text here. This is, again, in that big middle. This is chapter 11, right in the middle of everything. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, watch, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. That's not at the end of the book. It's right there in the middle, almost exactly in the middle of the book of Revelation. It gets interrupted with a picture of the way things are. You have begun to reign. This is a present tense statement that you've already done this and it affects the state of things right now, the way things are. But it looks a lot like the way things will be. It looks a lot like that end where heaven is all gilded and beautiful and the gates are wide open and the saints are there. It looks a lot like the way things will be, but it interrupts this moment uh, with the way things are. Now hang with me for a moment. This might feel a little abstract, but this is really important for what the book of Revelation is doing. I've talked a lot about the way things are, dark and difficult, unjust and corrupted and broken, and the way things will be, healed and whole and good and beautiful. But there's another thing that Revelation is doing. It's actually saying the way things are isn't even the way things are. The way things are isn't even actually the way things are. Does it feel today like evil is more powerful than good? Does it feel like the things that are breaking the world have more strength than the things that are healing the world? It feels to me like that almost every day. Like I'll have a good mental health day where like I don't look at CNN or Fox News, you know what I mean? Like I'm having a pretty good day and then I go to the freaking gym and they won't take it off the TVs. So like even there, like I'm being confronted with all this stuff falling apart and all these angry talking heads and all these lines being drawn and all these corrupt people doing corrupt things and it just feels like the way things are is evil is having the final word and the powers that are breaking things are more powerful than, than the things that heal things. And Revelation is saying, not only will that not ultimately be the case, it's not even the case right now. The way things are isn't even the way things really are because even now, God is on God's throne. Even now, there is justice with God. Even now, there is goodness with God. Even now, there is beauty in God. Even now, there is peace with God. And the people who find the strength to actively resist, the people who find the strength to patiently endure, are often people who have some kind of vision that the way things are isn't even the way things are right now. This is what an apocalypse can do. It doesn't just reveal the future. It reveals the truth. And we've been given an apocalypse, uh, not just in the book of Revelation, there are other places in the text that speak of a sort of reordering of chronology, that the way things are is in some 
mysterious way the way things are right now. So for example, let me take you to a favorite Christmas text. This is um, a text that's often turned to during the Advent season. Sometimes it's called the Magnificat, which comes from the Latin from one of the first words in the text. This is a song that Mary sings while she's pregnant with Jesus. This is before Jesus is born. This is before uh, he's done anything to heal anyone. This is before he's been resurrected. He's in her womb, and she's with her cousin Elizabeth, who recognizes what's going on, and she responds with this song. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Hear the past tense there? He's already done this. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one, watch this, has done great things for me. By the way, on a, on a surface level reading, the only thing that God has done for this poor woman, not to be crass about this, is get her pregnant when she's not married in a world that would stone her for that. Seriously, that, that's what has happened on a surface level reading. Mary is an unmarried woman engaged to a man who's already pregnant. All God has done is created a problem for her, unless she has a fundamentally different way of seeing time and the way things are and the way they will be. And so she says, the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who hear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Did you hear what Mary did there? Like she knows that in the end, she's, she's a good Jewish woman. She has this expectation that in the end, God will make everything right. But somehow in this moment, with her experience of the advent of Christ in her womb, the, the tenses change from future to present to even past, as if the way things will be is somehow, in some way, the way things already are in the advent of Christ. There is already some kind of justice in God. There is already some kind of goodness in God, some kind of peace in God, some kind of rightness in God. To borrow a phrase from a writer I love, Parker Palmer, a kind of hidden wholeness that was never broken, that could have never been interrupted by anything that we did to break it, that it was always with God and in God. And an apocalypse is an un unveiling or revealing, right? Let me show you how the word breaks down a little further here. So apocalypse is not just a name for a genre, but it comes from somewhere. The word comes from apo and calypto. Apo means away from in the Greek, and calypto means to cover. So it basically means to take a cover away from something, to uncover something, to reveal something, to unveil something. And Revelation is not the only apocalypse in the New Testament. There's another uh, thing happening in the New Testament, which is an apocalypse, not as a literary genre, but as an unveiling, as a way of saying, hey, even now the way things are is not quite the way they seem. Even now, though it looks like evil has the final word, though it looks like uh, your problems have the final word, though it looks like injustice has the final word, though it looks like your addiction has the final word, though it looks like your difficulty has the final word, even now things are not the way they seem. And apocalypses do that, they reveal, they pull the curtain back, and Revelation is not the only apocalypse. Um, let me show you what I mean. So Mark's gospel has a peculiar little feature um, that like, I get super excited about because I'm a nerd like that. So uh, Mark is one of the stories of the life of Jesus, right? And in Mark chapter one, verse 10, at the very beginning of Mark, Jesus is baptized. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven 
being torn open. That's literally the exact same vision that's happening in Revelation. There's a revealing and unveiling, as if there's a way that things are in God that has never changed, that has never failed or fallen, and that somehow the, the difficulty that we have in seeing that or realizing that or understanding that, somehow that veiling is broken open in Christ. And so Mark begins the story of Jesus by saying, this too is an apocalypse. This too is an unveiling. This too is showing you the way things actually are. And then at the end of Mark's gospel, this is a bookend. Um, fancy word for it is an inclusio. It's where a writer f- frames everything by what they do at the beginning and the end, and it tells you the meaning of everything in between. At the end of Mark's gospel, when Jesus is crucified, we read this. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the temple uh, is a sign of the veiling of the heavens, the idea that the Holy of Holies is behind that curtain is a way of saying the curtain is a symbol of that which veils the enduring reality of God from the world that we see here. And Mark ends his gospel with the curtain, the heavens, if you will, being torn open. In other words, Revelation is not the only apocalypse, not the only revealing. Jesus is the apocalypse. I don't mean the thing that's meant to make you afraid and like have nightmares about bad preachers. I mean, Jesus is the revealing, the unveiling, who shows us that the way things are, on some level, some deep, soulish level, a way that only the deep places in us can know, the way things are is the way they will be. And people who find the strength to actively resist or patiently endure are often people who catch a a glimpse of that, who are compelled by a vision of that, and then they know that acting in accord with the way things are is not just optimism or naivety. It's actually a deeper investment in the way things are right now. I think of um, one of the more difficult experiences I've had in my life three times now, uh, which is in Jerusalem at a place called Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. And Yad Vashem, um, as you walk chronologically through the story of the Holocaust, it begins... Um, before the atrocities that made the headlines that we know about, with the early acts of prejudice against uh, the Jews in Germany and then other places like Austria. And eventually you get to the horrors of the gas chambers and the mass graves. And um, there's this one display in uh, Yad Vashem that just gets me every time. And you're at the point in the story where the Jews are in these concentration camps and some of them are being dragged away to their murder while others are waiting for the same thing to happen. Um, According to the best reports I understand, they're being fed something like 200 calories a day, when most of us in this room probably enjoy 1,200, 1,500, 2,000, during the holidays maybe 2,500 calories a day. They're being fed 200 calories a day. And the women in the concentration camp, watch this, they start a recipe club and they start trading back and forth handwritten copies of their favorite recipes. They're not cooking in the camp. They don't have access to any of that. But uh, we have these artifacts. You can see them at Yad Vashem. The recipe books that they compiled, they're in the concentration camps. I stood there in front of that display for a while this time, and I remember thinking, these are people who know that the way things are is not the way they will always be. And some how in some peculiar, mysterious way, they've decided to participate right now in the way things will be when families are made whole and injustice is confronted 
and mothers can make their favorite challah for their kids. Like they've decided that there's something true, there's something appropriate about living in accord with the way things will be because maybe on some deeper, more primal, spiritual, transcendent level, it is the way things are. Not, by the way, not to gloss over injustice, not to say that evil is an illusion. I don't think it is. It's very real in the here and now, just that it's not the ultimate reality in the here and now. And people who know how to actively resist and patiently endure are often people who have realized that the way things will be is somehow the way they are right now if we can only see it and learn to live with it, learn to dance with it, learn to enact that right now because it's actually in God and if it's in God, it's available to us. Um, so I think, about, uh, I think about your kid who's just acting like a hellion lately. And like, you're tempted to use some revelation language, like on your kid, right? I actually proposed that last week. Um, and like, it's like all you see right now is everything rebellious or angry or acting out in them. And there's something about learning to see um, beyond that, deeper than that, uh, since no one alive can be um, here without coming from God in some way, right? Nobody here cannot be a bearer of God's image in some way, right? And so you learn to see that maybe there's a future for your child where they get their stuff back together and they learn to act right. And somehow you allow that future picture to invade the current moment. And sure, you discipline and you correct and you rebuke, but somehow your soul learns to hold on to the fact that the way things will be somehow is the way they are right now. And there's a truer truth about your child than the way they're acting. Your, um, your friend who just keeps running into the defeat of their addiction. And they're telling you about another story of stumble. And because um, you're frustrated and they're frustrated, your temptation is to shrug your shoulders and say, I guess this is just the way it is. Because apparently you're channeling Bruce Hornsby. Uh, it's just the way it is. Except some of us are learning it's not the way it is. There's a deeper truth about you, even now. And your failures, your stumbles, they are not telling the full truth about you. And it's not just that we believe you will be healed. It's not just that we believe there is a wholeness waiting for you. Somehow, it's also true right now. And we have to have the unveiling happen to help us to see that. It's your neighbor um, who maybe looks differently from me. And because of their color of their skin or their gender or some other part of who they are, they found the world that we have created to be far less hospitable to them than it is to me. And because you've heard these stories again and again and again, we're all tempted to shrug our shoulders and say, I guess it's just the way it is. Except it's not just the way it is. Because on some level, the way things will be, where every injustice is confronted, where every systemic thing that we have built that keeps some people down so other people can get up, it's not just that that future will come, but that somehow the place where that future resides, which is in God, is here, in the here and now. And from that, we draw the strength to resist and to endure, to push back against the way things are, because they're not even ultimately the way things are. We've already had an apocalypse, you guys. We've already had a revelation. We've already had an unveiling. It was the advent of Christ who came and who will come again. And we invite that advent right now. We invite that welcoming right now to show us uh, that God who was and is and is to come is holy, is holy, is holy. The God who was and is and is to come is good. The God who was and is and is to come has never given up on justice or righteousness 
that he's never given up on holding us and our world together. And we are people who invite that revelation, who invite that apocalypse, so that we can find the strength to actively resist and patiently endure. I keep hearing this phrase in my head. It's simply this. Even now. I want things to be put back together. And then I hear this thing inside that says, there is a wholeness even now. It dwells in God and it's been revealed to us in Christ. And we welcome the advent of that Christ to keep encouraging us. Because even now there is a wholeness in God which has never been broken. Uh, when I run into the limits of my own willpower, my own discipline, the quirks of my personality that cause me to make mistakes and break more things than I fix. And I long for a day um, when those things will be put back together in me. I'm learning, and this is where I run into the limits of my language. And you might walk out today thinking you've got to work on this idea for a bit. But I hear in my own spirit, like as I long for that day when I'm put all the way back together, I keep hearing, even now, even now there is a wholeness in God which he has given to us that he's invited us into, and the advent of Christ is the unveiling of that. It's the revealing of that. It happened, it will happen, and it happens even now as we welcome that advent this season. So um, I want to invite uh, the team to come back up. And we've already litten, litten? I'm out of all my words now. (laughs) We've already put the fire on the thing. Um, (laughs) One of the joys of this season is to see the light grow. And so we'll turn to this second Advent candle. And I'll remind you, this is a practice that you're invited into for the week ahead. And so if you didn't grab one, you can grab a candle on your way out there on the tables. And you can do at home this week what we're about to do. Um, As we do that, will you simply stand to your feet while I offer a couple of questions to meditate on? And then we'll light this second candle, which reminds us that even now, Christ might come and teach us of the hidden wholeness which was never broken by the things that we have done or the world that we have created. Uh, So let's put these two questions in front of us. In what ways do you need to actively resist? And how can that resistance be strengthened or encouraged by the advent of Christ this Christmas? And then this question. In what ways do you need to patiently endure? And how can that endurance be strengthened or encouraged by the advent of Christ this Christmas? As we sing Rejoice, uh, we'll see the light grow.
May you know that the way things are is not the way they will always be. May you know that even now, there is a grace and peace, a hidden wholeness in God which is being revealed. And may that unveiling, may that apocalypse strengthen us for active resistance and patient endurance. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.